right. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Office for Multicultural Learning and RRC's podcast titled Word on the Street. This is a podcast where we really just talk about anything and everything that's related to current events or Heritage Months, which is today's episode. Today's episode is in celebration and in honor of May being a Pisa Heritage Month. And we are honored with the presence of some folks who are representing the Apisa community as it relates to SCU. Um, So we're super grateful to have everyone here. So my name, just to do some introductions, is Jacqueline Ibarra-Garcia. I am one of the student inclusion educators for the OML. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I'm a fourth year marketing major and business analytics minor, and I'm not affiliated with the Apisa heritage. I do identify as Latinx. So Gabby, do you want to take it away? Of course, yeah. Thanks for that intro, Jackie. So my name is Gabby Loschutz. I am another student inclusion educator for the OML. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I am currently a fourth year senior studying economics and international business. As Jackie said, I don't identify as a part of the APISA community, but I do identify as Ethiopian American. Great. Well, hi, everyone. Uh, My name is Dr. Tim Layson. I am not a student um, here at Santa Clara, but I serve as an associate director um, within the Office of Residence Life. My pronouns are he and they, um, and I do identify within the PISA community um, as a Filipino-American. Great to be here. And hi, uh, I'm Damien. I use he, him pronouns. Um, I'm a junior, third year. I'm currently a marketing and history double major and I am Chinese and Korean, and I am the co-chair of the Korean Student Association, uh, part of the MCC. Hi everyone, I'm Renee, Uh, she, her, hers. I am a second year MIS and econ double major. I am part of the PISA community uh, as I identify as a Chinese American, and I'm representing APSU as a member. Awesome. Thank you all for those intros. So we're going to dive right into our discussion questions. And the first one we came up with was we wanted to ask you all, at what point in your lives did you begin to consider yourself as a part of a minority group? And what does this um, mean for you? Like, was that something you were always conscious of or when did it come up? I can go first. Um, So I think for me, it happened when I was pretty young Um, in my schooling. um, I'm originally from New York City, um, but this is Dr. Tim, by the way. Um, And so living in New York City in the early 90s was very, um, very diverse. Um, I go to school. I went to school with a lot of different kids from a lot of different backgrounds. And um, you could just tell the visible diversity. But Um, The system of education just wasn't great for the needs that I had personally. And um, so we had to move to um, New Jersey Um, and the schooling was better. But first day I walked in, I noticed that I was literally the only brown person in class. And I think it was like third, maybe fourth grade when that happened. And I just it just I just became hyper aware of it. Um, and there wasn't another like student of color until about seventh grade. And so 
it was it was a lot but um for me that was my first experience of like oh i am part of a a racial group i can go um so when i was younger i had my my community was majority asian i went to an immersion school so the name was based was chinese american international school obviously a lot of uh, asian students so it wasn't until i reached high school that there was an Asian Pacific student coalition. And that's when I kind of realized like, oh, there needs to be this group set, set apart because we're the minority. Because I'd never had that before. You'd never needed because when you're uh, when that basically the whole school is Asian, you don't need the separate group set apart as your community. I guess for me, it happened a lot like closer around high school, because growing up when I was a kid, um, most of my friends were Asian. And then um, I'd just be surrounded by my family, who's also predominantly Chinese and, you know, going to Chinatown in San Francisco all the time. So I really understood that I was Chinese and I was Asian, it, but it wasn't until high school um, where I got, you know, more exposure to different people that I realized, oh, this isn't, this isn't the majority of, you know, life and stuff like that. And then like going forward into college, um, seeing the disparity more and more often, it really stuck with me how the minority tag is still related to Asians. Yeah, I think that um, transitions really well to one of our next questions, which is kind of on this minority tag that's affiliated or like affiliated with the APISA community and how in some ways it's different than the minority label that is associated with other groups, such as like the Latinx community or the Black community. And I'm really just talking about the model, like the concept of being a model minority and this is something that the OML, like OML has talked about previously. We've had a whole event with, uh, in collaboration with the MCC last year, I believe, um, just about the model minority myth and like how that's impacted the community both positively and negatively. So just to reiterate the model minority or a model minority is a minority demographic whose members are perceived to achieve a higher degree of socioeconomic success than the population average um, and is serving as a reference group to outgroups and has historically been connected to the APISA community. So this is moving on to our next question um, about your, your relationship with this, this myth. So how has the model minority myth impacted your academic and professional standing? If, if it has, maybe it hasn't. My question for both Renee and Damien is, have you all ever heard of this term um, even prior to coming to Santa Clara? Yeah, I've, I've been, I've heard about it for like before Santa Clara and like, I, I understood it a little um, like, um, the stereotype of Asians being good at math. Um, so yeah, in a way that it did sort of like push me to be, 
to like focus on math and being good at math. Um, but yeah, and then stuff like that. I was always aware of it, at least in high school. Yeah, I feel like even if you don't know maybe the specific name, you, there is the expectation or even just like even with your family to be good at, at academics, be successful. So when somebody finally puts a label on it, like the model minority, it's it's already easy to understand because you've experienced it, not just from other racial groups, but from, you know, your own parents and you, you feel that pressure already from basically childhood. Yeah, and that's like a really great point. And, and Tim, feel free to talk about this as well. Like how, would you say like you, for the most part, like leaned into this, like these stereotypes or these like higher expectations that you had from like your parents as well as the greater community? Um, yeah, what was that like growing up and, and transitioning to, from like high school to college where there is a little bit more diversity or like not, maybe not diversity, but in relationship to like how you both described your your childhood settings and like your community growing up? What was that like? I feel like I did push myself a little harder, not just because uh, I'm Chinese, but also because, you know, you never want to disappoint your family or your community in that way. There's that kind of stereotype that you hear about, like, you know, Asian parents put, you know, push you harder, but also it's about your community as well. When people talk about like, oh, you know, we're so proud you like, you went to Santa Clara, good for you. It's like, yeah, I am proud of um, being able to, you know, kind of live up to what they wanted for me. So I uh, like going to AP classes, doing, you know, all getting great, good grades. That's all sort of part of it. So I did try to live up to what people wanted from me, just because I think it's ingrained in you to try harder and, you know, live up to expectations. Cause you want to, you want to, uh, you're, you want to be loyal to your family. And also, of course you want to do well for yourself as well. Yeah. And I think for me, I also like leaned heavy into it. Um, Cause a lot of my friend, most of my friends in high school were Asian and we we did have like this understanding of like the stereotype so like it sort of fostered like this competitive atmosphere among us um to like you know do math faster than someone else or stuff like that but yeah and to renee's point i also really relate to like not wanting to disappoint your parents because well, they're the ones that see the grades. Um, so yeah, a lot of that really was, you know, present for me, at least in academics. It's interesting. Oh, sorry. No, go Gabby. I was just um, gonna say, it's interesting to hear you talk about um, like the competitive aspect that was there and how that might've affected your dynamics, not only just with your family, but in school with your friends and um, kind of change the way you perceived your own uh, version of achievement. That's something 
we were really um, intrigued by in our discussions, trying to think of questions for you all. Um, and I think one, one topic that we kind of focused on was like that competitive spirit, how it manifests maybe a little bit differently than the American competitive spirit that uh, we might have a stereotype of. And we were wondering if you all had received messages about being assertive, um, whether it's in your family life or in your academic life, was that something that was pushed on you or not talked about? Um, just in terms of how you've expressed your competitive spirit, how do you think that manifested? Well, I feel like as both Chinese American and a female, you definitely get messages about being, you know, demure, quieter than other people. You know, it comes at both, you know, it comes with the intersectionality of having the, both of those identities. And I was listening to um, some lecture, like the like last month, I guess, where somebody said that even just having a name that signifies you are like an, a Chinese American female, people are less likely to think you're driven or ambitious because of the cultural uh, ideas that people have. So I do think being assertive is not one of the traits that people are expect of uh, Chinese Americans or females, just because you know that's the expectation, as well as you know, um, I want to say assertive qualities are always taken the wrong way, especially with females, being that you know. And just speaking up can turn into, you know, bossy, sensitive, any of those turns very negative. Yeah, and to contrast with that point, um, me being male, um, I can't really remember like specific messages for my parents, like to be assertive, like other than like, you know, being a kid and whining about things instead of using my words but aside from that I I never really got those messages about you know being assertive um because there's also just the element of I was always kind of assertive or not assertive but like um more clear about what I want and what I want to do than you know normal Renee, can I ask you a follow-up question? Sure. Um, I appreciate the perspective that you shared um, with the intersection of being a female and then also identifying as Chinese American. Do you feel like the perspective you shared plays out here at Santa Clara in any way? And like, whether it's you or like um, you directly or an observing, of, of what you just mentioned, do you feel like you've seen that here at Santa Clara? I do feel like anywhere you go, the social expectations are a lot the same, even if people don't realize their own biases. Because I've had, like, when I hear, you know, somebody say something kind of derogatory about women and I say something and then I get, I get called sensitive, like that was the example previously, like, I can see, oh, that's 
that's something that they don't even realize why they're saying that they just that's the way they interpret it because of their own like internal misogyny so but on the cultural side i feel like there is change happening because um you, you know we see everything in the news and you know right now it's the kind of the time for asian americans are starting to speak up more so i do feel like that at least that side is changing more you hear you know from all the mcc clubs and um we start speaking up about the issues that are impacting us because college is the time to for people to start learning how to uh kind of practice social justice that we hear about and i think right now especially with um social media and being able to share that like that that gives uh like younger voices um the ability to share what we see like especially you know all the videoing and um share sharing that even if it's just like on your instagram story that does give us a chance to speak up even if it's in the smallest ways so i think that part at least even like our parents are starting to be like, oh, I saw this on Facebook and like it's horrible and we should start talking about this, which I think is a great change for us in the community. Yeah, I feel like just like hearing what you're how you're responding to Tim's last question, I feel like in a lot of ways that kind of re resonates with like my experience because I feel like it's so weird because when I was younger, um, I also was told like, hey, be obedient, like don't talk back. Um, but then like when you get to college, you're kind of expected to like be able to talk back, ask questions, challenge things. Like that's the whole point of getting a higher education in many ways. And it's so weird because now when I talk with my parents, I feel like in some ways, like yes, with social media, like my parents are learning to educate themselves in, in many ways, which is always great to see. But in other ways, it's like, if I do have a disagreement with my parents about something, um, for example, like we had a lot of debates this, this year with like a lot of things that were happening that were pretty defined or, or meant to pr promote division, but like, I remember anytime I would disagree with my parents, they would say, oh, you just think that because you're getting a college education that you're better than us. You think that you're smarter than us. And it feels so weird because like, I'm the first person in my family to get to go to, straight to a four-year college. So it's like, I don't want to be dis disrespectful to my parents. I want to be obedient. Like I was kind of taught to be when I was younger, but at the same time, there are ways that I do want to like kind of grow out of that shell and take the things that I've been I've been taught in in you know at SCU. I don't know if anyone relates to that. Um but yeah, I feel like kind of on that point, I we wanted to ask a little bit more about just how you have changed as well. Like we talked a little bit about what going to college is like, but now we wanted to ask a little bit more about you know, what perceptions and practices associated with your heritage specifically do you now feel removed from either since you've gone into college or like maybe it could have been beforehand? And, you know, in what ways do you, yeah, so in what ways do you feel more removed from your heritage, but in what ways do you feel like you may have actually become more connected to? Well, a big thing in the Chinese um, 
heritage and culture is the Confucian values of like respecting your parents, respecting your family and friends and that. Um, and that was thrown at me a lot as a kid. And I really do believe all of that, like respecting my family, you know, and like supporting them. Um, but going to college and being more involved with the MCC and um, the issues that we talk about um, sort of not changing respect, but reevaluating to what, to what extent that can go like, like just what, what the boundaries are for respect. Like when can I talk out? Cause like some things are fine. Like telling me to go eat dinner or making me, you know, eat meals. Um, but then other stuff like, um, just like racism towards, um, other groups, like what, what's speaking out of turn and what's sort of, that's just blatantly wrong. And like, I should do something about that, you know, trying to find that balance still. One thing that makes me feel more connected to my culture is being able to speak the language. I think previous in previous generations, there was that idea of, you know, lose your accent. You got to learn and learn English. That's the only way to get by in, uh, in America. But now people are looking more towards like being able to write, speak, read their own, uh, like their own, like these foreign languages and being able to connect with older generations who may never have learned English. Like that's maybe the only way I could speak to my grandmother. If I did, if I hadn't learned it, otherwise I wouldn't be able to communicate and talk to her. So I think that part definitely makes me feel more connected, especially when, you know, you, you have to order food, you know, you have to speak to other, like your, your friends, families who only speak this language and then they can teach you more about your own culture. So I think people uh, underestimate that kind of that, that communication that it allows you, especially with people of your own uh, own culture, just because there was always this idea of you shouldn't because you want to be Americanized, but that's no longer the norm. Oh my gosh, Renee, like that is a hundred percent like on message, like on point. Because I am part of that generation that was told to like make sure your your American accent is good and like well clearly can't speak right now. Um, like I was part of that generation that was told don't learn your home language. Like English is going to be the language of the world, and while English is predominantly taught in a lot of places, um, that doesn't mean it's a world language. Um, and I identify with that a lot. Um, because it wasn't until later in life that I began learning how to speak in my own culture and like understand when I speak, I don't, it doesn't sound right, but I definitely understand when, when my family gets together and they're talking in Tagalog and just understanding that. And that, yeah, I am a part of that generation that, that was told not like, don't be Filipino, be an American who has a Filipino heritage. And it's like, no, like my identity as a person is is Filipino because that's the first thing you see about me. And so it's been a lot to like change that. And 
really lean into it. And I say not until like my adult years did I really lean into like appreciating um, the, the, the Filipino culture of like understanding family and individualism, individualism and all of those things. Cause to bring up a different point, I was told you can respect someone, but still disagree with what they're saying. And I think for me, I, I don't hide how I feel about a lot of things in this life. And if someone does say something messed up, please believe black, white, Asian, whatever culture you come from, you will be told about yourself at the end of the day. But a lot of people don't also expect that from someone, from someone like me who identifies within the Apisa community. So just a very interesting dynamic, but I appreciate um, the, the thought that Renee had brought up about the generational gap. Um, and that the younger people are truly like going back to some of the old school ways of like learning the language and being able to speak in conversation. Yeah, and I wanted to talk a little bit more about that point before we move on, just because like, I just like like to think about like just the generational differences. And I've talked about this a lot with my partner already. Like think about how, like just compare our generation with like our parents or our grandparents, like our parents, like they, for the most part, I don't want to speak for everyone's, like for everyone's parents, but like for the most part, like they are not as like open-minded to, you know, the LGBTQ plus community. They are not as open to maybe even interracial marriages or a lot of the things that our generation has come to, you know, accept. And even just like the practices and like the languages, the way that we, you know, Spanglish, for example, in the Latinx community has become super prominent in media and music. And I just, I really enjoy to not enjoy per se, but I think find it really interesting just to see how much generational differences there are. So I wanted to ask, how do you anticipate, you know, the next generation to be like, how do you anticipate or how do you plan to like, maybe even raise your children? If you plan to raise children, do you plan to like what things about your culture do you plan to like pass down and what things do you plan to like maybe leave behind or transform in some way? I feel like one of the big things I kind of want to pass down or at least keep sharing would be the culture of food in because in the Pisa community, like food is what brings us together. It's, you know, all the banquets, all the special holidays are centered around food a lot of the time. And I think not having that kind of experience growing up would have definitely distanced me more like growing up with just Americanized food would not have given me as much as I as I did with all the uh, like Chinese food I had growing up and now it's even becoming like more popularized in American culture to have foreign food coming over here like boba got really big Uh, some like I saw boba place in Alaska which was really weird so I think having it used to be like anything foreign was like you know no good don't try it don't have it it's all for them like one racial group specifically but being able to kind of share that and like popularize it even among um, the general community I think is really important and being able to share that with younger generations because uh, having food is such a big part of any culture 
being able to pass that on would be really important to me. One tradition or practice that my family does is we um, venerate our ancestors and um, the dead. So we go to the cemetery where uh, my grandparents are buried and we burn incense and we give them offerings and we um, burn paper goods to send up to heaven for them to enjoy. Um, so that's definitely one thing that I want to keep for my kids and the later generations because that always gave like a good connection to uh, my grandparents and older generations that I remember a, a little, but I was also just young, so I didn't remember a lot of it. Um, but that and just like respect, like keeping that atmosphere of respect is something that I definitely want to keep for my kids and, you know, going forward. I, th I think about um, things to like continue to pass on. And even, even for someone like me who see, like who's watching your generation grow up right now, all four of you, like, I think the value of family is still very strong within the Pisa community. And I feel like family is a, is a very strong thing amongst many communities of color, um, like the central core of who you are. But I think the one thing I'll expand upon is that family isn't just necessarily about blood or not blood. It's about the people that will uplift you and challenge you throughout your lifetime. So I think this, this understanding that for the next generation, and again, I already see it, that the, this concept of family is continuing to broaden out um, and like just like just keeping that going within into the next generation of uh, a lake of people. And you know, if I have kids one day, God willing, um, that you know that's something that I want to instill in them. But also, one thing I would I would want to leave in in, in the in the bat in the behind is this 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 feeling of like be having to be docile. Um, we each are given a voice and gifts from our, our higher, our, our, our higher being or maker or God, whatever you want to call it. Um, and we're, we're called to use those gifts to make some sort of impact in, in the way in the communities that we live in and the world that we, that we, we see. And so I think it's just, especially for, for a piece of folks, like going back to that model minority myth of like, you can't be silent anymore um, because there, there are just so many different things going on in the world and injustices and like we are also a part of this community um, of like transforming what we want to see the world moving forward. So family is something I would continue to move forward and something I want to leave behind is just like this like this docileness because um, it just it just doesn't help um, make progress or change um, move forward. Yeah, what really stood out to me from all of you guys' answers was just the power that um, respect carries for within the community, within family, and even in regards to relations with ancestors, how much um, 
time and dedication and care is given to establishing that respect and that being such an important part of your culture for all of you, I think is really telling as to, you know, hopefully in the future, like that respect can be just carried forward. And I think carried more individually, as we said, just in empowering yourself and allowing your voices to your voice to be used and heard by um, not only just your close community, but other communities as well. Because as we as we kind of touched on, the APISA community is large, even at Santa Clara. I mean, we have 10, I think, RSOs in the APISA community. And we were wondering what that kind of relationship looks like for you all. Um, whether you think that that kind of respect carries over from community to community, or have you ever encountered um, maybe some bias, biases within the APISA community that there might be a stereotype of um, some regions or groups being held to a higher esteem. Uh, we just wanted to know if you have any experience with that. I mean, as the oldest person on this call, um, I've definitely had experience like that. Sometimes the, the Philippines is, and I don't want to say it this way because it sounds terrible, but it's sometimes called the Mexico of Asia. Um, because the Philippines is considered a third world country, um, massively underdeveloped in some respects and just barely being developed in other respects. And sometimes the Philippines is looked down upon from within the PISA, within the PISA group or the PISA community. And I think sometimes like it, it, I've seen it play out, but I've definitely been told that message um, numerous times um, in my in, like in my lifetime, um, I've also been told that like Filipino people aren't really Asian because they're not closer to either like Korea, China, or Japan. Because um, even in like Filipino movies of like the mid '90s, and I'm dating myself because I pr pretty much feel like y'all were probably born somewhere in the late to mid '90s or early 2000s. Don't laugh. Um, but even movies depicted like, in order to have a better life, you have to go to like Japan, China, Korea, um, or Australia because they're the neighbors down, down a little bit more south. So I think it's like, in order to have like the ideal Asian life, you have to go somewhere else as a Filipino. And so that to me is just so interesting because that's definitely what happened in my own family. Um, between my mom and my dad and their brothers and sisters, like they all came to the US, um, but I have three uncles that have lived in Japan for almost the majority of their adult life and have no, have no inclination of ever wanting to come back to the Philippines because they still consider it a dirty country. So yeah, it's a, it, it's a thing. He's also racist, so like we keep him on the fringe um so he has many other problems but yeah yeah and adding on to that um that preference of you know korea Jap japan and uh, chinese i think part of it shows like the colorism of you know preferring light skin over darker skin countries it's really shown especially in conversations about a like about asians asian groups when 
only problems that or issues that are mentioned is like oh you know chinese problems you know the japanese problems but the very lack of conversation about the other countries is what really shows that preference like cambodians you know uh any other countries where there's darker skinned Asians, you don't really hear about as much. And just not hearing is are already formed like basically favoritism. I think a lot of that is, you know, when you're in a place that doesn't that you already feel kind of outsider, you don't want to be the the most outside. You want somebody else to be like, uh somebody else to be the scapegoat you want to be like oh at least we're better than them i feel like that's always been the way you know you want this there's always been a hierarchy even with um with like african americans there's been with and white like poor whites oh at least i can be better than this group it's always been shown and it's continuing even though it is you know everyone knows in you know in theory that it is racist you still want to be better than someone else that's so interesting. And I think that goes really well with some other, our next question, which is kind of talking about this anti-Blackness that is um, so prevalent in the Apisa community, but I think in almost every community, because like I mentioned already that I had a lot of disagreements with my parents and a lot of it was be in response to the Black Lives Matters movement. Like my parents, you know, were said, oh, but don't all lives matter? Or like, why aren't they saying like Latino lives matter? And like, it was so, it was so frustrating to see like the blatant anti-Blackness within that my own parents still believed in. So I wanted to know a little bit more about your thoughts on this, your experiences with anti-Blackness and how have you seen anti-Blackness manifest within your community while growing up, whether it's, you know, with conversations you've had with your with some people in your family as as people have already mentioned or with media um and how has this potentially how have these conversations about this concept changed um within this last year with the black lives matters movement in my experience a lot of that a lot of anti-blackness um was just like casual use of the n-word just like throwing it out there whenever um and then just like racist jokes about that um and i think a lot of that was because um a lot of my friends were asian growing up um and you know we were only around each other so like we didn't really have much experience outside of our own a group or Asian community. So, and in my experience, a lot of like racism stems from like just basic ignorance and like an unwillingness to like learn or educate yourself about, you know, different aspects of someone else or like another culture or people in that way. And while we're on the subject of relations between the communities, I do want to mention that in the past, there was a lot of solidarity between both groups, especially during like the social movements. Um, like the, th the Black Panther Party was part of the inspiration for the Asian civil rights movement, as well as like after the killing of Vincent Chin, 
black activists like Jesse Jackson were part of the kind of were leading kind of the charge to get justice for him. So I think it is important to mention there were times when the communities came together in support of each other. But I do think that the separation was caused by just overall it, these certain incidents that caused strife. There were uh, when the, the Rodney King incident where LAPD officers uh, killed a black man and didn't really get any harsh repercussions for it, really set, set off some of the uh, conflict and tension. A lot of it's about pitting groups against each other so they don't, so they don't come together very specifically. You know, a question that I think you all should probably ask your family members is, what was it like to be part of your community back in the 80s? Um, and even, even before then, um, and how we understand this concept of solidarity within all groups um, can really inform the perspective of what anti-Blackness continues to be moving forward. Because I will say this is also like a, a, a very big generational gap between a lot of different, within different groups. I mean, even Jackie's example named it very nicely and even and I'll say my immediate family, my mom, dad, and sister are like, we are like hella liberal. And so like, we are sometimes treated like, um, like the bad apples of our family because we're not afraid to challenge people and like ask questions that are difficult to answer. Um, but that was just them. The rest of my family is, is not like that. And so when I've had conversations about anti-Blackness and all these other things, my racist uncle um, told my cousin who is married to a Haitian black man um, and they have a beautiful baby boy um, that the mulatto little child will not be allowed around me. And I was, th that's real. And this is only like, I think like maybe six years ago, how old is Chase? I think like six years ago, when this happened and hearing that, I was like, you don't get to say that, number one. Number two, do you realize you're talking to a family member? And number three, say it one more time, and you're gonna catch some hands. I don't care how old you are because that's just not okay to, to do that. But he also grew up in an American society where like, where he was literally told black people are evil. And like, how do you change? How do you change that? Do you change that? And so that's why I'd say for all of you, um, ask your parents these questions, like ask your family members these questions about like, what did racial consciousness look like for you in the seventies or eighties? I mean, hell, even in the nineties there were still, the people still weren't as like racially conscious as, as they tried to be. And so I think it's about, to Renee's point and even like Damien's point further, like how do we stop this disruptive casual cycle of like using like harmful words to one another? Um, 
because another racist family member also said like I'd rather be Filipino than Hispanic and I'm like I'm sorry what like have you tasted some of their food it's better than ours um but like just hearing things like that I'm like what is wrong with y'all like we should not be trying to be better than anyone else we should just try to be a better person but again like they they grew up they it's a generation thing they were in that generation of like everyone but our group is okay um or everyone everyone outside of our group is not okay but we're okay no that's just like colorism at its finest that's just like anti-blackness at its finest like it's just like all those anti things in its finest form which is why i would really challenge you all to ask the ask those questions um because you'll get a, a sense of understanding of like why a majority of your family members probably believe that all lives matter versus you all and even me that say black lives matter yeah, I want to just add on to that quickly because I feel like a lot of uh, minorities don't really self-analyze, especially the older generation, because a lot of the times they can just say something and when somebody calls them out on it, it's like, oh, you know, I can't, I can't possibly be racist. I'm also a person of color. That's such, it, so it doesn't really give them an opportunity to actually look and see like, oh, am I, am I kind of being racist here? Especially even, I've seen it even in younger generations, like Damon was talking about, you know, younger Asian boys, like saying the N word. A lot of the times they just get off without, uh, without really thinking about what they're saying because they don't, nobody really pressures them to think about it because it's so widespread. I've seen it a lot in the Bay Area, which is really surprising, but being, being able to say that and not having to be called out on it, I think also just adds fuel to the fire. I would say going off of that, it, it definitely is like, those are really difficult conversations to have. And I think a lot of the times people do let it just slip by because as we started talking, as we started this conversation talking about a lot of these communities, your communities are very tight knit. So it's not often that, you know, uh, diversity is commonplace all the time, 100% a normal thing. But at the same time that, you know, it allows for these blind spots to pop up, whether or not um, it's a conscious bias, it, you know, it creates these kind of echo chambers of uh, the same ideas, not really evolving with the times or evolving to really find the, the root problems or kind of take accountability for the role that you or your family members or friends might play in this as well. Um, which is kind of why we wanted to, for the last discussion question, focus on um, solidarity as a movement and just in what little ways in your, whether it's with your friends or at school or in the groups you're in, um, the RSOs, how does solidarity between the Stop Asian Hate Movement and the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, what does that look like for you or what kind of ideas do you have to gain more of that solidarity?
I think one of the big things to attain solidarity would be to recognize why we don't already have that, why the conflicts exist. And I think something people have to recognize, especially uh, with with the news, with the media and also social social media, that there is it is an active choice for people to show the videos that they do show. And what I mean by that is that the violence against Asians over the past year, a lot of it has been shown to be uh, African, African-Americans doing these attacks, but then uh, almost the same percentage is whites committing the crime, but those aren't shown on on the news. And that's an active choice because they want to feel the fire and the conflict between these communities. I think recognizing why that's being, why that's happening and why people why this tension is growing because of that is important to recognize because then we can kind of overcome it and see what, who the real, like how we can advocate for each other instead of just arguing about, oh, who's meaner to each other? Who's more racist to the other group? Yeah, I think you bring up like a, good point about not comparing like who's suffering more because that only like begets more tension and conflict between the the communities so yeah just like accepting that everyone is being hurt and marginalized you know working trying to work together to fix those issues um And at least for me, solidarity looks like um, just like speaking out when someone is attacked or um, disrespected in any way from any community, really. Um, Just because that, that basic sense of justice isn't like inherent to any one community. So like applying that to people on the basis that they're just people all the same in spite of whatever their background may be. And like, um, yeah, just like speaking out when it's necessary. Uh, Damien, I'm going to steal what you, what you just said. And I think it's, just such a great way to really think about that justice is not inherited to just one community. And I think it, that, that's it's very powerful um, to think about that. And justice is, is supposed to be meant for everyone. And it, it's not in, what, in, in who we are as in, in our country and really throughout the world. And I think, you know, to, to bounce off Damien and Renee, I think it's just about showing up, um, showing up and showing out and being in the good trouble and just like continuing to, you know, you can't just show up on a social media post, which is fine. Um, but I think it's also doing some sort of action that goes along with that. I mean, this past summer with a lot of the BLM movements within the, the San Jose area, like I participated in the die-in in front of City Hall in San Jose. Um, I participated in demonstration march to the 
city capital of Santa Clara, which is not far from where I live. Um, like I try to be as active on campus as an administrator um, as best as I can be. Um, but I think it's just reminding, reminding ourselves that to truly stand in solidarity is to remember that justice isn't just inherited for one community. Justice is meant for all, but we have to want it for all. And I think it's just every group, every minority group, just remembering that we are no better than anyone else and like how we can help uplift one another and break down some of these systemic barriers to like being like just good humans to one another is just a way that we continue to promote solidarity between Black Lives Matter and Stop Asian Hate and like, um, you know, just every other hashtag that's out there, but you gotta do something about it. That is so powerful. And I, I just really loved how you, you ended on that note. I think, yeah, like if you can, if we cannot get justice for everyone, I don't want it. Cause like, that is not justice. Like selective justice cannot be a thing. Like we cannot fight for one cause and just completely ignore the other. If it doesn't directly impact us, you know, I think that was really powerful. So thank you so much for saying that. And thank you everyone for participating. That was the last main discussion question that we had for today. And really quick, I wanted to plug an event that OML is hosting. And then I wanted to give y'all the floor so you can promote any um, events that are happening for the remainder of this month slash this ac academic year. Um, but really quick, I wanted to promote the SCU Listens and Learns session, like the Race Reflection Renewal session that is scheduled for Wednesday, May 12th, 2021 at 12 p.m. This is um, a series that has been happening all year, and this is going to be the last one of the year. And we've gotten um, a board member from the Active Change, a social media director um, for the hashtag hate is a virus, virus, um, I guess, hashtag. And then we also have Melissa DePino and Michelle Sahin, who are both the co-creators for Privilege to Progress. And they'll be, um, again, they're going to be here for the Wednesday, May 12th event. I highly suggest if you enjoyed the conversation that we had today, all of those listeners, um, all those who are in this room right now, highly recommend you go to that because they're going to be talking about exactly the same points that we were talking about today, just solidarity between the BLM movement and the Stop Asian Hate movement and what that really looks like and what we can actively do moving forward to be more proactive, less instead of reactive or performative when it comes to um, trying to partake in promoting these movements of justice. So that's just my little piece. I wanted to plug that really quick because that is right around the corner. Um, and I did wanna just, again, pass the floor to everyone else before we wrap up for today. Are there any events happening for the last leg of the academic year? Or do you just wanna promote when um, your, your RSO's meeting times are? I'll just open the floor to, for everyone else. KSA doesn't have any big events coming up, but we do have our general meetings on Zoom every Thursday at 6.30 p.m. Um, for more information and to sign up for our newsletter, you can 
follow us uh, on Instagram at SCU underscore KSA. And there's a link tree link in our bio. So you can sign up for a newsletter and join our Discord. And then um, in the newsletter is the link for our gen meetings. So actually we'll be having an in-person hangout next Wednesday at 7 p.m. And our general meetings are on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Uh, so if you want the information for either of those, it'll be in the newsletter this week. Uh, you can go to su.apsu on Instagram to get, uh, to get access to that newsletter. Well, thank you all for shouting out those events um, and your general meetings. I hope you get some new word on the street listeners that can come and visit your meetings. Um, but in general, thank you so much for coming to this recording. We really appreciate hearing your stories and hearing your backgrounds. It's so insightful for all of us to listen to, and I really hope our listeners enjoy as well. So on that note, uh, thank you all very much for attending, and this has been great. Hope to, hope you hear us next time. <laughs> nice. Thanks so much, everyone. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you.